Hello, and welcome to Unpleasant Movies, the pleasant podcast about unpleasant movies. My name is Sven Ogur. And my name is Thomas Simonsen Balmbra. And today we are discussing, for our 30th episode, the eternal classic Eraserhead from 1977 by David Lynch. And it stars the amazing Jack Nance as Henry Spencer, Charlotte Stewart as Mary X, Alan Joseph as Mr. X, Jean Bates as Mrs. X, and Judith Roberts as the beautiful girl across the hall. And the cinematography is by Herbert Cardwell and Frederick Elms. And before we start talking in depth about the film, we do recommend that you've seen it as we talk extensively about the plot. So there'll be loads of spoilers. For sure. The story is about Henry Spencer, who's a young printer who's on vacation. <laughs> vacation just in his apartment. Well, apparently. And he's had somewhat of a fraught relationship with Mary X, his girlfriend. But he's invited to dinner with her parents. And it turns out that she's pregnant. And he's responsible. Was she pregnant? Isn't he informed that the baby's already in the hospital? Yeah, the baby was already born. Yeah. But he didn't know of it. No. And they get married. It's difficult to take care of it because it's a, a weird baby and it makes lots of noise. And as it's making loads of noise and being weird and disgusting, she can't get any sleep. So she heads off to her parents and he starts to take care of it while it's sickly. And he has a bit of an affair with the beautiful girl across the hall. But then she's creeped out by the baby and starts hanging out with another guy. When he sees this, he decides to open up the bandages of the baby's body and everything goes to hell, more or less. Yeah. There's also a bit of a feverish nightmare sequences and some imagery of a woman inside the radiator that sings weird songs. Yeah, and she has like hamster cheeks and she steps on these sperm-like creatures. Yeah, she stamps on these worm semen creatures. Yeah, they're a sort of recurring motif in the movie. When you describe the plot, it almost sounds like a normal movie, but it's really not. It's so cut in with so many weird and dreamlike horror sequences. It's kind of weird talking about the plot or the story because things happen and there are situations and there are characters in a sense, but that's not really where you're at as an audience. You're kind of uh, immersed in the feel of it. Yeah, there's so much dream logic. It doesn't necessarily follow a normal plot. I mean, it does, but that's not what you're kind of engaged in, I think, mostly. Yeah, I mean, there is a plot there, but that's not really what it's about. I mean, so much of it feels like this fever-induced stress dream. Yeah. And the plot is there. But just like there can be plot in your dreams, mm. it doesn't necessarily like reach a satisfying <laughs> conclusion. Yeah. Well, it's a really interesting movie. And I mean, if you haven't seen Eraserhead, you do yourself a favor and watch it. Well, it is really an amazing movie and such a striking debut as well. Yeah, it's like a, a modern expressionist, surrealist masterpiece. The imagery is so iconic. Mm. Like you almost can't imagine a world without Eraserhead. Mm. The stark black and white, you know, the dramatic noir contrast of those horrible creature images and, you know, Jack Nance with his giant hair. And yeah. It's delightful. Yeah, I mean, talking about it like that, there's a lot of character, plots, symbolism, stuff that's kind of difficult to pass. But I, I'm not really very interested in, in those things. Because I feel like it works on a level of, um, not that there isn't coherence, but it's more of an emotional coherence than like um, narrative driven. For, for sure. I mean, I, th I think that's like a recurring thing with David Lynch is that people have this sort of need to explain the symbolism and explain his movies in a way that I don't really think David Lynch is interested in at all. If you watch his movies, I think you can get a really cool experience without having to sort of crack the code of whatever is going on. But I mean, as humans, we sort of want to find meaning in the symbols and, and the images we see and we'd like to tie it together. For me, that's never really been the appeal of David Lynch. And this kind of idea of a puzzle box movie that you pick up clues and you kind of deconstruct hidden meanings. One of the common interpretations of this film is it's about uh, David Lynch's uh, feelings of anguish or angst related to becoming a father. He had his daughter, Jennifer Lynch. She's in the film as a young girl. And this kind of uh, idea that it reflects his um, personal insecurities and feelings... I mean, it. you definitely do get those feelings yeah. in the movie. There's definitely a lot of horror around the whole reproduction mm. cycle and birth and children and dealing with sick infants and stuff like that. Mm. Like, that's super intense in the movie. Right. I don't necessarily think the movie is just about that, but you definitely get that feeling yeah. from it. But it's probably one of the like most intense and horrible 
depictions of infants and like making that into this body horror scenario in a in a way that has never been done in such an intense way before or since i think it's kind of unique in that aspect what's unique about it is that it's very concerned about the emotional anguish around parenthood very rarely do people discuss like the ugly weird and unsettling things about you know taking care of something small and unpredictable that's of course sickly. but it's, it's so taboo to talk mm. about negative aspects of yeah. childbirth and raising an infant i mean it's supposed to be this beautiful magical thing like in the way like the overton window mm. of discussion around childbirth and children like is never especially like infants mm. and the birth itself and stuff like that it's almost uh well it's usually sanitized in a way like you don't really deal with the truly horrible aspects of it yeah, of course a lot scary of, as well yeah but a lot of parents deal with yeah. postnatal depression and stuff like mm. really horrible feelings around it and mm. it's interesting to see it like so starkly and mm. imaginatively depicted yeah this film doesn't glorify anything really and sex itself is kind of a weird and guilt-ridden thing yeah every character in the movie seems so like fucked up but especially like Jack Nance as, you know, Henry Spencer, he feels like so powerless, like all these things are happening around him and he seems like unable to deal with it in any productive sense. Well, he looks very put upon. Yeah, it looks does. very like on edge and he's kind of hunched over. And I love his acting in this film. Like yeah. he does a lot of things with his face where it's kind of um, the uh, opposite of a voiceover in a sense. Like he communicates a lot of his emotional state it's almost as if he has an internal monologue or something going on while he's acting out things. You can tell that there's a lot going on. You don't hear it directly, but you can sort of feel his states. Like suddenly. if you could hear his internal monologue, it would be like a Kafka novel of, <laughs> yeah. of like uh, unimaginable horror. But you don't hear it, so it's yeah. so interesting. But I think a lot of the language in the movie is inspired and informed by like silent movies Definitely, and yeah. there's a lot of almost like physical comedy in the yeah. way jack nance moves mm. about and his expressions and stuff the family too is so yeah. like just weird in the way that like the father's like maniacal grin that yeah. never changes like yeah. it's so unsettling but it's funny too yeah. there's a lot of humor in this movie despite it being horrific yeah it has kind of like as you said there's something kafkaesque about it this window in his room that looks straight into a brick wall there's a bleakness in the humor that's uh, it's there if you see it i think there is a lot of humor in it yeah and another thing is i think there's a lot of stuff that you'll see pop up later in lynch's work a lot of things small details like yeah. electricity crackling mm. and the focus on electricity like steam and like the whistling of mechanical noises and steam and electricity and um the tree symbolism that is yeah, in there he has this thin leafless tree in some like a branch roots, yeah on a pile of earth stuck down in yeah, a pile of dirt that's yeah. like on top of this doily yeah. that's on the dresser and it's like i hate that image it's so <laughs> disgusting to me like i don't know why it's just this little clean frilly like grandma doily that's covering the night table and then this pile of dirt and a branch something's very wrong about that to me he's had that imagery from his short films as well and i would imagine maybe from his paintings because it looks like the sort of thing that he was painting but i like it and it sort of feels like like you have the marvel cinematic universe but i feel like you also have the lynch cinematic universe where a lot of this feels like it happens in lynch world where all of these things happen you have these weird sounds everywhere like this stark electricity it feels thematically like it echoes before and after mm. Eraserhead, but Eraserhead feels almost so pitch perfect in the way he did it. It's a really good movie. A lot of his other works have a lot of criticisms about it, but Eraserhead seems very well liked among Lynch fans. Well, I would say that most of his films are extraordinarily good. But there's something very personal about this one. It feels very genuine in a sense. You know, you can criticize it for being weird and, you know, not understanding it or whatever. But in terms of an uh, emotional expression, it, it stands very strong. It communicates powerfully, even if it's diffused in its meaning. Yeah, for sure. Like, even if you don't, or like, if you're confused about the story, you can't deny the powerful imagery mm -hmm. and like the extremely emotional responses you get from some of the stuff that happens in the movie, like the sound of the baby and it's so bodily. Like, even if you don't like it, I think it, you get a physical impression of it almost. Yeah, it has, it has an unpleasant unease to it. But you mentioned the sound, and I think this is one of the things that's really a stroke of genius with this film, uh, and it's also been very influential, I think. 
you have people who are directly influenced by Lynch and often like the soundscapes are very clear but a lot of the mood is set through the sound there's a lot of sound from out of frame and he has a quote he says that a sense of place is critical to a film sound in particular can expand what you're seeing expand a world it can break or enhance a world and there's so much of the setting and the mood of the film that is enhanced by his use of sound whether or not you can see where it comes from of course there's the industrial sounds of the place where they are but there's also like the suckling of puppies on their mother's teeth yeah managed um, to make that so disgusting by the way the sound design is there and the uh, fluorescent lights blinking and all the noises around they're very stark and very uh, emotionally loaded i think yeah i love it the sound design is almost has the same contrast as the imagery mm. it's very poignant and, and in your face and very like direct and strong and unsettling and the imagery is very painterly. He is a painter. He studied fine art initially and did a lot of painting and started experimenting, filming his paintings. That was his first foray into working with film. And you can really tell that through his compositions. Like They're really well thought out. Each image is really beautiful in itself. Yeah, it's a really beautiful movie. Like Especially like the lighting. Yeah. It's so well lit. It has this sense of like those classic noir movies mm. or, or even those classic German expressionist movies. Definitely. There's this extreme drama in the frames. Mm. It feels a lot like Mono, I think. These compositions where the blackness of the frame really enhances like the mood and he has the way he uses angles. The blackness is really interesting. There's a lot of stuff that sort of appears from mm. and disappears into the blackness. Like the first time the lady in the radiator appears mm. when she's done singing, she sort of just retreats into the darkness mm. and it's like very it's very beautiful but also mm. kind of scary mm. or unsettling uh, also the beautiful lady next door as she's named in the the credits uh, she also kind of emerges and disappears into the darkness yeah it's very like sort of nightmarish mm. the way faces appear and disappear and characters appear and disappear it has a surreal dreamlike beauty to it but also this dreamlike terror and I, I love that I, but I feel like it is surreal and sort of almost abstract and, and confusing I think the symbolism is so striking, though. Like, a lot of Lynch's later stuff, I often, like, I'm not sure what I'm feeling. Mm. But in this movie, I'm often quite aware of what I'm feeling. Mm. And it is sort of very tied into the whole, like, this creature, this deformed child mm. that's, like, barely human. And the way he sort of has to deal with it, it's so, like... Like, I can understand why he's upset about it. But at the same time, occasionally you can glimpse a lot of affection when he comes into the room and it's sitting there and he he looks genuinely very pleased to see it, if a little put off and afraid as well. Yeah, it's interesting. Like, it's not just disgust. Mm. There are other feelings involved. Like, I think the first time he comes into the room, he's like smiling. Yeah. And like, oh, look at that little creature. Apparently, it's at least suggested that it's uh, created from the embalmed fetus of a calf. Like the head at least. But I don't know. I mean, it, to me, it looks as though it could easily just be a puppet in silicon. Or... It looks more like silicone to me. I would say that the practical effects of the baby are great yeah. and horrible. Yeah, it's not a very complicated puppet, but it is very efficient, I think. The way it uses its eyes and the movement feels very organic, I think. Like, I kind of got to feel that it's almost like a sock puppet because it's so like subtle, some of the movements with the mouth and stuff. Yeah, it looks great mm. and it's so iconic and sort of disgusting. Like when it barfs up the fluid it's getting and the tongue and its movements it's such a beautifully designed little horrible creature yeah. just one of my favorite creature props from any movie really it's just this little bag of terror <laughs> yeah yeah it, it is very striking and and this scene where he's waking up at night and taking its temperature and then he seems to think it's okay and then he turns around and looks at it again and there's this shock image of it covered in boils. Yeah, oh God. With like a pale film over its eyes and looks really sick. And It's not exactly a jump scare, but there's something very immediately unsettling about that image. Yeah, it's like when you have a really horrible dream about something you can't control, like mm. some horrific disease or something mm. like that. It feels very like that. Like you said, it's not quite a jump scare, but it's horrible. Yeah. It's really horrible. Like you look into its mouth and it has like... It's like chunks and it's, mm. it's so horrific. Yeah. There's a lot of this film that feels like a dream where you can't control things. Yeah. feels weird and, and difficult to relate to. Yeah. But at the same time, you just, 
can't help but love the way it's created, like the universe in mm. the movie, and like the whole thing is just so fucking delightful in the way it's crafted. And you know, so much time and energy and love was put into this movie. It, it was a very long project, and it was his first feature film, David Lynch. Mm. And he made it, started making it as a student. The American Film Institute, they had this um, place where he studied, because as I said, he initially he studied fine arts and then uh, started making these uh, short films that are themselves quite interesting and there's a lot of similarity you can kind of see where his style evolves watching those those older films and he's invited to the school and yeah he got a grant for the grandma i think mm. and through that he was invited to be a fellow at the institute mm. in california i think it's 69 he starts at that school and then it's either 71 or 72 that he actually starts filming Eraserhead. it started out as a script called garden back which was based on one of his paintings of a hunched figure with lots of vegetation growing out of his back which was really sort of a surrealistic story about adultery featuring a continually growing insect representing a man's lust for his neighbor um <laughs> Which would have been roughly a 45-minute film. But <laughs> the, so the school, the AFI, they felt that it was a bit too long for kind of a, a non-figurative... Well, Lynch so didn't want to do it eventually either. He got tired of it. Uh, well, my impression is that there was so much back and forth that that idea got deconstructed. And in the end, they kind of agreed that he would do this other film, which was a Razorhead, which was initially like 20 pages long. So they thought it would be a 20-minute film. And he kind of tried to explain that it wouldn't be. Anyway, um, I think the school was meant to be like a two-year program more or less and he ended up because he got to use some of the stables and some hayloft and some some of these old facilities that weren't much in use yeah he got a the entire building the stables building yeah, to use as a soundstage and, mm. and basically everything that he would have a studio was there and he spent up to four years working on the film uh, as you say it was finished in was it 76 you said yeah it released in 77 i think 77 yeah so he spent a few years on it and a lot of the locations in the film that aren't outdoors they're kind of the same place that's redecorated and henry's room that was where david lynch lived for that time which wasn't strictly speaking allowed but no i don't think people really gave a shit Uh, the people who kind of had oversight they looked through their fingers and let it pass and the scenes with a family mr and mrs x and stuff that was filmed pretty early on and as it went on uh, you know people had jobs and stuff to survive and i think there's one of these scenes where jack nance walks to the corridor to his apartment and as he goes into the room there's like a year or a year or a half between that image and the one where he actually comes into the room there was a lot of prep work in between there and, and a lot of other things going on yeah for sure but then a lot of other things went really smoothly. Mm. Like Lynch also talked about how easy it was to cast, like dangerously easy. Like every single audition, the first person who showed up was like, yeah, you're perfect. You're exactly the one yeah. that I want for this part. Well, actually, there was one. Um, he thought that uh, Mrs. X was too beautiful. I and mean, yeah, that was the only, only yeah. snag. And, and he, he said to her that she, he wasn't sure she'd fit because she was too beautiful. But then they decided that they'd do something. They gave her a lazy eye and some stitches and stuff. And David Lynch, he crafted a wart and some, mm. some hair for her face. And, yeah. and then she did the rest, as he said. But she insisted on playing that part. And that's cool. Like, yeah. And, and it is really well cast. And all the actors, they have such great physical presence. They communicate a lot by their mannerisms, I think. Yeah, I mean, they also have to because the script is extremely sparse, but mm. the way they act with mm. their bodies in this movie is, is very good. Like I said, it reminds me a lot of like silent cinema. They're able to express so much mm. just using movement. But the interesting thing about that, because it's kind of a toned down version of that, like you have modern examples of, of silent era style where you go for that very expressionistic style of acting. And this isn't so much that. I mean, it's expressed through the body, but it's pretty toned down in a sense. There's a lot of stuff, particularly with Jack Nance going on in his face. And they all kind of, in their scenes, they typically have like a hunched position or something that's very specific for the situation. But they're not going for that kind of overtly exaggerated method old silent cinema has kind of almost an operatic style to it yeah yeah. Mm. it's not that but Mm. there are moments of Mm. almost like expressionistic exaggeration Mm. like the father for instance Mm. and his like maniacal grins and the mother has some really like maniacal moments yeah 
But overall, of course, it's its own thing. And it is、mm. like the Eraserhead universe. It's not a silent movie. It is a movie with sound like. It does its own thing, but it does have this sort of vibe of really sort of communicating through movement. What I think is really good at using the elements from other bits of art that he's interested in and, and just adapting it to his own needs. He has a very clear idea about what he wants and how things should be. Like there is an inherent logic to everything, both on a filmatic and on a conceptual level, I think. He doesn't necessarily explain those. Things very clearly, or has any interest for you to know his interpretation of that? But it feels very coherent, I think. Yeah, I mean that's one of the things I like about Lynch and directors like him in general. Like he really knows what he wants, and even if you disagree with some of his choices, sometimes, although I seldom do, I really like a lot of his stuff. But he knows what he wants, and he's very particular about it, and he's gonna get it. Yeah. And there's a lot of this, what I think of as silent storytelling. The way he shows initially, kind of the fraught relationship between Henry and and Mary X, is that he takes a torn photograph up from a drawer, and he typically shows things instead of having characters say them out. And there's a lot of information that's left out. We don't really know what conflict they have or haven't had, and he lets the audience to do so put together. In many ways, we don't really need the specific. They're kind of superfluous. It's the feel of the thing, that right? Matters, right. It's definitely the feel. Like it's not the kind of movie where you get things explained、mm. to you. It's a very particular universe. Things work in a particular way. You would never get a satisfying straight-laced story in this universe, but you do get the outlines of it. But it's like you don't get the origins of stuff. Don't get the endings of stuff. You're sort of plonked in the middle of it and sort of left to deal with the story as it is, sort of explained to you, and then all the weird stuff surrounding it. And informing it. Yeah, the mood is always very clear. Yeah, that's the interesting thing. Like it is so confusing, yet it's so like crystal clear and very deliberate in everything.、Mm. There is this sort of beautiful contrast between those things. You always feel like Lynch knows exactly what he's doing, and it's interesting because you seldom have like any real understanding of what's truly going on. But Lynch seems like he does. At least to me, it feels like you're experiencing situations, right? And often things happen, and they've not been signaled so clearly. So you're not exactly sure what exactly is going on. Like the first time Mary leaves to go live with her parents again, as she's about to walk out the door, she kind of turns to look at Henry and almost smiles or something. And then she reaches out, and her her face behind like the railings of the bed, and she starts this weird jerking motion, and it seems like super absurd. But then you kind of start To understand, ah,、oh, she's pulling something out from under there. But like initially, it just feels like a really absurd and weird thing. It's not been signaled to you what's going on, and a lot of situations are like that. Things aren't explained and they're not signaled clearly, so they seem kind of out of the blue or weird. But the context is always clear. Yeah,、way. sometimes you get like it resolves into something.、Mm. Oh, that's why that's happening.、Mm. Of course, some stuff is just deliberately completely、mm. absurd. Like there's a lot of these small snail-like or shrimp-like、mm. creatures, and they're like sperm-like, and a lot of these like things they're not explained at all. But it seems to have to do with like general anxiety and procreation and infants and,、mm. and things like that. Sex、yeah. seems a huge part of this movie. It's interesting that Garden Back was about having a relation to your neighbor, as that's also a part of this. Yeah, it is, and that's interesting. That sort of tension that is there with、yeah. the neighbor. I also love later on when you see the neighbor with this other guy. <laughs> he's he's、yeah. so, such a slob. <laughs> yeah, he's so creepy. Yeah. It's like he seems like such a pervert. Yeah, yeah. <laughs>、like、with a little mustache and like a birthmark in his、yeah. face, and it's like shiny. And it,、yeah. she's very striking, and he's definitely not. Yeah, not in a positive sense, at least. But it's just so fun. I love yeah, it. It's like、mm. it's so weird. And, and that's、funny. almost like an emotional truth as well. Like the person who is with their like the person you desire, they are ugly, right? They are revolting in a way. Right. That feels correct <laughs> in the way the situation is. She's interesting. I, I think this character because she she's the only character that feels like very confident. There's something animal. Realistic about her in a sense. She's almost like a predator. She's initially、uh, unshakable, almost. Her gaze is very kind of unwavering. She does have a very like powerful presence、mm. in the movie. I I love her. Like she's not a big part of the movie, but she sort of is、mm. in the plot sense. But the scenes with her are great.、Mm. She's really like some mystical and strange and. And Jack Nance is the complete opposite. His glance is looking to the sides and very uneasy.、It、always looks like he's in anguish <laughs>、yeah. or like emotional anguish and a bit twitchy and. Yeah, he seems like this bumbling sort of. He's always like under a huge pressure. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. 
I love it. He's great, though. And that sort of contrast between him and his neighbor, it's very palpable. Yeah, I feel like there's a lot of depth to his acting as well. And I think he brings a lot of himself into that. He's kind of a perfect cast. Like, you can feel that there's something, um, you have no specifics, but you feel like this is a person that has been put upon a lot. He has a lot of angst. and Yeah, you can feel that this is a person who's sort of familiar with anxiety. Mm. And I mean, Jack Nance's life was fraught with a lot of anxiety and, and horrible shit. And he was an alcoholic. Yeah, and... very serious alcoholic as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he died way too young, like, mm. in sort of mysterious circumstances. Yeah, and, uh... he was in his 50s. He'd Because um, he, he'd had a dry spell while he was doing Twin Peaks. As he pops up in, in several of Lynch's films, like Blue Velvet and stuff. But after his uh, second wife died, very tragically, she also was a very a person who didn't have an easy life. And uh, they were having a phone conversation and, and he wanted to break up, essentially. And she had said something like, if you hang up, I'll kill myself. And then their phone lines had shot. I think there was like a electrical disturbance, lightning or whatever. There's a storm. So the line was broken yeah. and he panicked and he went over to a friend's house and tried to get the phone there and that they couldn't get through. And I think they went to the police station. There was a big uh, thing about getting around and I think it was an hour or two hours or something before they could get her checked upon. And at that point she was actually dead and he had a lot of guilt. Uh, That's so tragic. Yeah. Like circumstances beyond your control. And his death itself, a few years later, he was pretty much, you know, back to being an alcoholic and... Um, he had met some youngsters outside a, a bar and kind of spoken roughly to them that they should shape up and get a job or something like that. I mean, he was in his 50s, so he's kind of a grumpy old man, I guess. And they'd just beaten him up. And he came home and he told about this situation. But then he died relatively shortly from head injuries after that. We never found out who they were or what happened. Yeah. But um, his first wife, actually, whose name is uh, Catherine Coulson, during the production of this film, she was both one of the people who kind of worked for a living and gave money to the production and also doing his hair. So David Lynch designed the, the hairdo and then for every shoot, she'd fix up his hair and he'd have to keep that hair more or less for those four years. And she's known to more people as the log lady in Twin Peaks. Of course. And she has small roles in several of things. And while making Eraserhead, she also had a role in his uh, short film, The Amputee, which is basically she's sitting in a chair and talking and... She has a foot that's cut off and kind of leaks a bit and someone's coming in to clean it. It's a very kind of a, a simply made short film. She's a great log lady. Yeah, she, <laughs> very iconic. Yeah, I think she barely got to be in The Return mm, before yeah. she passed. So she's kind of followed his entire career. That's pretty cool, I think. Yeah. But yeah, yeah Jack Nance feels like there's so much history to his acting here. Yeah, he brings so much humanity to his characters. I really like him and I feel bad for him, mm. you know. But uh, he is a great actor and he, he's sort of the centerpiece of Eraserhead. Yeah. And I think by some people, he's considered one of those uh, slightly lost actors that never really got his big chance. He, sure. he was uh, just about to get the main role for The Graduate that went to uh, Dustin Hoffman, which is interesting to think about. <laughs> yeah, that fucking sucks to miss out on that part. <laughs> yeah, but imagine Jack Nance in The Graduate. That would have been pretty interesting, I think. I think it would, would have had a slightly different sort of feel to it, but I, I think it could work really well, actually. I mean, it's hard to think of The Graduate in any other way as mm. how it turned out. Which is, of course, very good. Yeah, this iconic movie, but gotta suck to miss out on that. And yeah. Like, yeah, it feels like he never like got his big break or like the giant part he deserved. But I mean, he got a racer head, and that is a super iconic part. Yeah, and, and he was very well liked for his role in Twin Peaks. But he kind of ended up mostly as bit parts and, and as a character actor. It was kind of a weirdo character actor. Yeah, I mean, he was really good in Twin Peaks. Yeah. Again, I think Pete is his character there and he, he seems like this really warm human character mm. in Twin Peaks. And of course, he's the first character you see in the opening shots of the pilot. And his iconic wrapped in plastic line. <laughs> but apparently yeah, he had a great stage presence. Well, he and... does have a presence on the screen. Mm. Like, he does have this sort of magnetism about him. I can understand people who say like he never truly got the recognition he mm. deserved. I was watching this documentary about him called uh, I Don't Know Jack. And it's about his life. And apparently he was uh, quite short in stature. But like on stage, he looked very powerful and had a strong presence, so to say. I mean, isn't it quite common for actors to be kind of short and have big heads? I think it varies. I think well, it, it, of course I it, varies, it varies. But there's a lot of well-known actors that are surprisingly short and like look a bit weird in real life compared mm. to on screen. It is a different thing to be. Some faces are, you know, they fit the lens well. 
And, you know, some beautiful people, they just don't, they don't have that lens magnetism. It's weird. Yeah, it's weird. I watched Roadhouse the other day and uh, Patrick Swayze's head is gigantic. Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I was just, I was just commenting on it. But yeah, Jack Nance is terrific in this and he really ties the movie together. One of the things that I really think works so well in this film is, is its sense of space. The passage of time is pretty difficult to pass ostensibly like he's on vacation but is it like summer or is it winter what's going on it always looks like night right mary x she like she's there and she's not there and and you can feel that there's some time has passed but you have no idea of where you are in the timeline but like spatially you're always very focused yeah it's incredibly like spatially aware Mm. i mean it's deliberate the lack of sort of a linear timeline it adds to the dreamlike confusion of Mm. the movie and also the night time. Like, there's only a couple of, like, real daylight sequences. Like, when he's walking in, in what looks like an abandoned rail yard or something. And those are just stark and depressing, too. So, like, it's not like they add <laughs> brightness to the movie. But, yeah, it, there's a lot of, like, those deliberate choices. But I, I totally agree. It does have this sort of spatial awareness in the composition of the shots and where everything's placed and the character's placement in rooms and stuff. He's spoken about how he was influenced by Philadelphia, the city, the look and and the mood. Something about how it carries more than you can see. He's talking about how a thing is indicated from interiors. He says that in the world of Eraserhead, you can be in a room and feel the exterior and know what it is like just from the mood. And that's, I guess, what he felt like Philadelphia was. (laughs) <laughs> at that point, at least, I mean, I've also seen interviews of him later on where he's kind of grieved with how graffiti and stuff changed the landscapes. Yeah. They're kind of not these sparse concrete walls anymore, which is another aesthetic that's useful for other people. But for of him, course. that was kind of a sad thing. Yeah, I mean, he's always seemed drawn to these like brutalist mm. architectural elements. It's very industrial. Yeah. Like, you see it everywhere in his filmography. Yeah. I think it's likely that he's had a lot of influence on industrial soundscapes and music outside of just film. He's one of these directors that's influence is extremely broad from literature and painting. Yeah, and, it's so pervasive. Uh, like you see it even in like run of the mill thrillers or whatever. You see him some little like hint of Twin Peaks or something like that. But it's, like it goes beyond movies. It's kind Oh yeah, of, for sure. Uh, like definitely in music. There's been so much music directly inspired by David yeah, Lynch. Yeah. And then you have all the music that's like bit like maybe tangentially mm. inspired. His vibe is so specific and interesting and creepy. A lot of that, I think, also has to do with how he worked with sound, because the sound design is almost the score, in a sense. The soundscapes that are so emotionally involved. Yeah, like specific sounds. And I think I've touched upon it yeah. earlier, but like he uses specific sounds almost as leitmotifs, and mm. they recur in specific scenarios. He's very particular yeah. and nuanced about it. And he is a musician, too. He's released albums of music. Like He takes sound very, very seriously. And he's always been involved in the music and sound process of his movies like he's never just left that up to somebody else yeah and one of his main collaborators in this film uh, and as his earliest like people he connected with creatively was this guy alan splett uh, who is the sound editor sound effects guy and i think they work very closely together and he's spoken about like you know back in those days the 70s you know you don't really have computers and sound libraries and stuff so they were told about bins of sound stock that Warner Brothers had just dumped outside in some containers and stuff. And they went and they just took their car, just chock full of this soundstock reels. And then they were just working through that and putting together. They managed to do that pretty cheaply, but, uh, you know, uh, probably a lot of work <laughs> navigating all that stuff. Yeah, but he, he's talked about the process of doing the sound for Racerhead as very enjoyable. He mm. loved it. But, like, a lot of aspects of this movie he was able to do very cheaply because of pure luck. Like, a lot of the set design and stuff he got incredibly cheaply from the studio that went bankrupt and just sold off all their stock. Yeah. And I think all the set design for Racerhead, he paid, like, a hundred bucks for it. Mm. Like, it's incredible. <laughs> So there was a lot of luck involved to making this movie. Yeah. That said, he also spent a lot of time just building the sets. Like he could do house painting and he had a lot of these skills that you need to make sets. And he yeah. worked long hours with like one or two other people to just... Uh... Yeah, I mean, just because he got stuff cheaply doesn't mean there wasn't an incredible amount of work put into this yeah. movie. <laughs> because yeah. it's almost a Herculean effort, this movie. Yeah. Like over years and years putting it together. And often movies that take that long feels super disjointed and doesn't oh, work. That's the danger of it. But this doesn't. Like, this feels so coherent. Yeah. 
And that's just one more impressive thing about it. Because watching it, you'd never think it would take like seven years to make it. No, no. It's kind of brief. I mean, I think it's like 86 minutes or something. Yeah, yeah. like when I think back on it, I think back on it almost like a short movie. Because it feels so concise. Well, I guess I have the opposite feeling. I, I was surprised by how short a watch it was because in my head, it kind of looms so large. And I feel like I remember situations and I remember imagery, but like having a clear idea of how things happen and, and how they played out and how long things take. In my mind, that was very vague. So yeah, I was a bit surprised at how brief it was. But I mean, it's not that short of a movie, mm. but it does feel short mm. because it's so good. You're never bored. Mm. It's always something interesting happening. Yeah. And like with me, I sort of recall the events as kind of short, but I think the universe I remember as very large and expansive and interesting and like super compelling. So I've always remembered it fondly. It's such an interesting movie, actually. We should talk a bit about this nightmare he has or this dream he has where yeah, he goes into the radiator to the woman who, who sings and then his head pops off yeah. and uh, <laughs> there's this snake thing that shoots up and the baby face comes up underneath there and uh, yeah. his head falls to a different location outside. Yeah, to, it falls uh, into this. It looks like the same industrial area from previous mm. scenes, but it's hard to tell. It's in daytime and yeah. then this kid kind of seizes opportunity and picks up the head and runs away and he delivers it to this office of these people who seem very excited about getting ahead. They don't seem very put off. The first guy at the desk, he seems a little bit unsettled, but the main guy, this kind of brutish, big-bellied boss guy. Yeah, it looks like a capitalist. Yeah, shouts loudly. Yeah, it's very boisterous. He seems really pleased about being given a human head. And he takes the little boy and, and a head into this side room, and they kind of plunk it into this machine where this operator drills the head, and there's a strip that comes out of the head that he puts into this machine. And then these pencils go through, and they're eraser is kind of on top of them yeah and the eraser is from that sort of uh, yeah. extracted tube tube from the head yeah so that's the titular eraser head <laughs> yeah and that is really funny and as we were speaking about it's kafkaesque but also you know gogol it reminds me of that kind of weird absurdist how things hang together yeah it's weird and absurd but also connected with this whole like clerks and rank system yeah. like this weird sort of functional industry of something completely bizarre for sure it does remind me of that sort of surreal literature but also like there's something conceptually interesting about oh, yeah. like the material of your head it's really good for erasing things yeah i mean you can see the symbolism like you could look at it like his head is so fucking empty you can use it to like <laughs> remove stuff or whatever but like the symbolism is there for the taking if you want it but yeah. you don't really have to care about it to me it's just a really funny and interesting sequence yeah yeah but i mean it has like an emotional resonance like it is a dream right and it feels weird and how do you feel about that kind of dream where where your head is equated with an eraser in that kind of a sense like it's an industrial object and without, you know, having to break down the symbolism of it, the emotional state of that kind of reduction or, or transformation is pretty interesting to me, I think. It uh, is very interesting. And I think another thing I really like about this movie and Lynch in general is he is able to have dream sequences that actually feel like dreams. Yeah. I think that generally in movies, dream sequences always feel too narratively important. Yeah usually tied to some sort of a revelation mm. or they have some significance. But in Lynch, they seem like actual dreams. And dreams do have like meaning to us mm. as human beings and especially like personal meaning. But it's more emotional and less direct. And I love that about the dream sequences in Eraserhead. They are so like definitely tie into his state of emotion and like how he's feeling but it's not very direct and it doesn't give you like any answers and another thing that i really like about dreams in his movies is that the border between when you're awake and when you're dreaming is very unclear and when you leave a dream often is kind of like you know some films have large sections of the film that is a dream right and you don't really know where it starts and stops and that kind of feeling which is very feverish and unsettling <laughs> i love it I mean, it would be so much worse if all the dream sequences ended with him, like, waking up panicking and sweating. Like, that would be so stupid. I'm glad it's sort of intertwined into the fabric of the movie in a way that makes you feel really unsettled. I also love, like, just the direct, not even symbolism, but, like, emotion of Henry just being the suit with his baby head. Yeah. Like, he's so infantilized <laughs> yeah. and stupid and dumb. And there's a sequence with his neighbor yeah. where he's looking at his neighbor and, like, suddenly he's the suit with a infant's head. Yeah. Like, that feels just so directly made to, like, make him feel like a child or a stupid baby. 
I guess I, I kind of read that scene a bit in terms of her disgust with the child and having come from him and him being equated with this monstrous calf human baby <laughs> yeah. creature and There's the different... weirdness of it and being so um, othered in a sense by the gaze of someone you find desirable and who just looks at you with kind of a, a disgust. Yeah. It's not necessarily like particular, but there's definitely like this connection between Henry and this infant in some way and her disgust. And it seems like almost his own othering of himself in looking through her eyes. And it's interesting and it works very well in a direct emotional way without having to like parse the exact syntax of whatever's going on. Mm. And a lot of the movies like that, it works so well directly emotionally Mm. without you really needing to go into the nitty-gritty of actual symbolism, which which is futile in the case of David Lynch anyway, (laughs) because that's not the way he works with meaning and symbols. Mm. I mean, the dude is, like, obsessed with meditation and transcendental stuff, and, like, he's sort of beyond that, I think. Well, I think he lets himself be led by those things in himself. He works with his personal emotional truth, but those things aren't really necessary for us, I think he feels. It's very interesting. You know, you have a lot of things that imitate or or use a similar style as him that kind of fail. And I think the reason is that the reason that his stuff works so well is that it is extremely genuine for him. Everything is very particular for a reason. Like he doesn't pick style for style's sake. It has a resonance. Like he's really hung up about the 50s and and not so much in this film, but he has these white picket fences and he has this branch in this dirt thing that goes around and these little boxes that have things inside them. I mean, there's a lot of 50s in this movie too, like the decor and the interior mm. design and this woman in the radiator mm. and the lamp designs are very like art deco Mm. it's all very very particular like you wouldn't just randomly put this together it has a sense of being very deliberately put together into this movie it is very deliberate and i think that's the big difference often that like if you're inspired by this style you might use elements of it because it looks beautiful and it, it is very striking but uh what does it mean for you personally aside from how striking it is like i get the sense that it does have a lot of meaning to lynch that's my point like for him it does resonate strongly but if you're trying to do a a similar type of thing and you pick his imagery that's just going to be copy and paste in the sense that's why often it doesn't work I feel when other people yeah for sure because it it does have this emotional truth to him Mm -hmm. the way he does things aesthetically Mm -hmm. which again carry meaning to him but it's not overt so copying the window dressing of that style is just not going to work because it doesn't have this sort of emotional heart to it yeah, you have to adapt it at least in some way. It makes uh, sense on another level. Yeah, but I mean, you can take away that it's important to follow your own sort of beat and your own emotions when it mm. comes to putting together more complex like uh, imagery and symbolism and, and stuff like that. You can't just take that stuff wholesale from somebody else. It will always be a pale imitation in that case. Yeah. So, great movie. I think it's screened for the first time in 77. Yep. And he was unhappy with the first screening. I think the voice level had been too high, but also the editing. So he went back and he cut 20 minutes from the original uh, screened version. And with that new version, which is the the one that we've all seen, he got it uh, played at these midnight screenings. I think it's like four years. It's continually circulated in loads of cities in America and was eventually seen by, among others, Mel Brooks. And he loved it. And he weirdly decided that David Lynch was the man who should direct Elephant Man. Yeah, that's such a strange coincidence. But I mean, Mel Brooks is just an amazing guy. Yeah. So. He was really funny and really weird, but he had an instinct. And he was correct. Who else would choose David Lynch for that? And it was a perfect choice. Like, it's probably his most commercial. I mean, it's a bit film. like picking Peter Jackson to do Lord of the Rings, right? <laughs> yeah, he kind of did that himself, though. I mean, that was his project for years. And yeah, years for sure, years. for sure. But he developed but that. Like, so that's like, kind of different, I feel. But It is different. Like, <laughs> there's no exact copy of it. But I mean, coming from this strange indie sort of uh, gross-out cinema and then yeah. doing this epic mm. stuff. And in the case of Lynch, like, doing sort of very emotionally grounded and sort of realistic depiction of the Elephant Man story. It's been a while since I watched that, actually. Yeah, I saw it not too long ago. And the thing that struck me 
it has very sort of a Dickensian vibe to yeah, it. Yeah, it does. Like the characters are very sort of this kind of caricatured villains with their weird little hats and... Uh, I love that though. Uh, it, it, yeah. it does have this sort of really particular style to it. Uh. And it's, of course, very different from Eraserhead. Yeah. Um, it has some similar stylistic elements to it. Uh, and he has some of these nightmare scenes and stuff, but very and different the, like, films. And the, it's very striking, like, visually, too. Mm. It's a beautiful mm. movie. But I'd say I'd say Dune was more of a mixed bag. But again, strange that he sort of <laughs> went from Eraserhead to Dune in, like, a couple of years. So It's pretty, uh, pretty interesting, yeah, yeah. I mean, um, what a start to a career. It's like this thing that always has followed Lynch since his Eraserhead days, though. He, he seems always to be very open to, like, spontaneity in terms of movie making. Like, in terms of casting, for instance. He often uses, like, non-actors. And sort of instantly believes in people. Yeah. And instantly believes in, like, the power of randomness to yeah. inform stuff that goes That's on in his yeah. directing. And it's often like that when he has people in his movies, like actors, it's often one of the best roles they did. Yeah, for sure. Like the casting of Bob in Twin Peaks. It was oh. like he was a set designer, but he was perfect for yeah. the role as Bob. Like yeah. you got to sort of go with the flow of what the universe is telling you. And uh, it's such a charming trait of his, I think. Yeah, it speaks a lot to him as a person. For sure. And his ability to just like believe in people. Mm. He really like gets the best out of people. Yeah. A lot of the acting that's done in his movies, like the characters are sometimes they're not nearly as good in other stuff as in his mm. movies. It does seem to have this sort of magic touch when it comes to directing actors. Definitely. So Thomas, do you have a recommendation? Indeed I do. Actually, I thought I would recommend one of David Lynch's short films, as you may not have seen them, and they are very interesting. There's, of course, the DVD that came out uh, in the 2000s, like the, the short films of David Lynch, and they're worth watching. In particular, I think The Grandmother, which was a 30-minute short film he made, which also got him into the, the AFI uh, school program. I really like this kind of a nightmarish novella film that's a nice meeting point between like the more narrative films like Eraserhead and Onward and his earlier very experimental very dreamlike surrealistic things yeah it did a lot of very like art short films yeah and this definitely is in that kind of surrealistic experimental tone but it also has distinct character types it's about a young boy who has these beastly parents who hate him. And he finds some seeds that he plants, which grows into a kindly grandmother. And it's very stark as well. Like the rooms are all black walls everywhere and their faces are painted and like the colors are very specific. And it, it has, even more so than Razorhead, it has a, is a very painterly feel. You can feel his influence from Francis Bacon and that sort of stuff. It almost has um, like the screaming Pope imagery from Francis Bacon. Classic. It's also the first time he works with Alan Splett, who's the designer for Eraser and stuff, and, and they kind of start their collaboration. So a lot of the things feel like they start to come properly together. You can tell that this is going to be an interesting filmmaker in one way or another. I mean, he could have continued in this direction with more like semi-animation, semi-live-action experimental shit and probably been really influential and important as well. Yeah. Uh, like he could have gone more like uh, Jan Svankmeyer way. Yeah, that's um, I thought exactly. And it's a very striking and, and quite a, a powerful... Like, the characters, they're very sort of... This is much more in this sort of expressive acting, like with one-note characters that have like a modus that is very intense and that specific thing, like the screaming of the mother and like unpleasantness. So it kind of leans even more into the silent era style. Like, like it's, it's not so concerned with acting and character, but more with types and emotion. You might as well watch all of them, but this, I think, is, is a kind of ideal short film that leads into Razorhead. Very good and, and quite unpleasant, it should be said. It's pretty <laughs> intense. Uh, yeah, that's not uncommon for Lynch in general. So Yeah, but this is one of his most unpleasant works, I right, think, because right. it's so in your face and, and so raw, in a way, with the characters. They're yeah. deeply unpleasant. <laughs> so check that out. I think you'll like it. It's great. I love David Lynch's shorts. They're mm. usually interesting in some very, very uh, particular way. Mm. So what about you? Do you have a recommendation for us? I do, actually. So I've been watching a lot of horror lately. I love watching horror in autumn, October yeah, especially. October. So I watched um, the remake of Candyman. 
And before I did that, I watched the original, of course, mm. which is a classic horror movie. So I watched the remake, and it's kind of strange, but interesting yeah. and worth watching, I think. But I got kind of curious about the director, so mm. I wanted to check out some of her other work. Yeah. And so I watched her debut movie, which came out in 2018, and it's called Little Woods. Oh, yeah. The director is Nieta Costa. She wrote and directed this. And it's very, very competent for a directorial debut. And it's quite a sort of low-key, very contained story. It's basically about this woman who is on probation for smuggling drugs. And her sister has a young child and no father. And she is applying for a job somewhere else. So she's going to leave this town. And they're losing the house. It's getting foreclosed. Yeah. So there's money issues, and basically she gets into this dilemma of whether she is going to go back to dealing drugs and stuff. She's almost done with probation. She's like nearly out of it. Mm. She's going straight. She's getting mm. a job and stuff. And it's just an incredibly tense movie. Uh -huh. Super tense. Okay. Like you're always waiting for something brutal to happen. But is it like character drama primarily? Is it like, very like character the drama. relationships are tense? Is yeah, that it? it's very, very well acted and the relationships are very believable. And it's also, it's, it's so low key. Like the characters are so small and so insignificant. Like they, they, they're so poor. And you really like feel their desperation and like their motivation is yeah. so clear. It's just very good. It's just a really good little thriller. And I recommend it. Nice. Well, that does sound very interesting. I'd like to see that actually. You should. So um, thanks for listening. Next episode, we will be talking about David Lynch's latest movie. It's a few years old now. It's called Inland Empire. <laughs> latest movie. <laughs> latest movie. Uh, I hope he makes another one. But even if this is the last one he'd get to make, it's pretty damn interesting and deeply unpleasant. Uh, of and I think it'll be really interesting to talk about also in context of Eraserhead and, and his, his latest stuff. So um, yeah, I mean, speaking of dream sequences... I think I watched it three times and I've fallen asleep every time towards the end and I've just have a horrible nightmare. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the film is kind of like a horrible nightmare. Yeah, it truly is. Uh, but I, I'm excited to watch it again. Yeah, I haven't seen it for ages. So I'm, I'm really looking forward to that. Now, if you want to get in touch with us, feel free to send an email at unpleasantmovies at protonmail.com. Uh, you can also check out our Instagram and our lists at Mubi or Goodreads. The music for this episode was made by a band called Emulium, and the members of the band are Jules Conning and our very own Svare Ogod. That's me. My name is Thomas Simonsen Balmbra, and I also make the artwork for the episodes. So with that, we'd like to wish you a very fond and happy farewell. And have a happy spooky season. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.